As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello and welcome to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson, and Professor Alistair McGrath. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles, resources, and podcasts. That's premierunbelievable.com. But now for today's show. In this series, C.S. Lewis expert Professor Alistair McGrath is delving into the Space Trilogy, arguably one of Lewis's lesser-known works of fiction. We'll be exploring the three books in the trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Perilandra and That Hideous Strength. Alistair, what were some of the opinions around extraterrestrial life during Lewis's day? And do we have any idea whether he believed that there was extraterrestrial life, aliens, things like that? Or is this pure fiction in Lewis's mind? Well, Lewis did make it clear that um, he wanted his science fiction to be read as fiction. But one of the things that Lewis does through his fiction is to open up the kind of supposal type question. Suppose... There are people living in other worlds. Um, how might we know about them? How might they get redeemed? A whole series of questions like that. And very often you find Lewis using these narratives as ways of, um, in effect, exploring questions. On some of these issues, we're not really quite sure what Lewis believed. But actually, you can see Lewis almost, if you like, testing them out, trying ideas and seeing how they work. And so literature very often for Lewis is a kind of mental laboratory to let him explore ideas and see where they take him. So we don't really know whether Lewis believed in aliens. Well, there are, there are points at which Lewis um, does discuss this, but I have to say it always seems to me to be slightly hypothetical, slightly um, cautious. And I, the way I tend to look at it is Lewis has no fixed views on these things, but is nevertheless trying to explore what if and then how might we respond to that? And do you think he sort of challenges the traditional depiction of aliens in science fiction? And if so, what are some of the kind of underlying theological implications of his approach? I think one of the things that we see um, in this trilogy is, if you like, um, a, a critique of the natural human tendency to to make judgments about life forms before you fully understand them. Uh, and Lewis brings us out in, in a number of ways, but certainly one of the things he's trying to get across is that very often you prejudge things and you need to rethink things because they challenge you about these things. And Lewis, very interestingly, doesn't depict alien life forms in critical or negative ways, simply saying, look, they're there. 
let's get used to this and try and um, come to terms with them as we find them. What is really interesting from my perspective is that the life form that is criticized most, particularly in that hideous strength, is other human beings. In other words, Lewis is making it pretty clear he, he regards humanity as in some way being malformed or deficient or, um, or contagious and capable of spreading this contagion to other places in the universe. So I think that there's a real concern here about how, um, how um, human beings very often make misjudgments, and that reflects things about us that we need to confront. Now, Lewis had a background in medieval literature, mythology. Are, are there influences of his background in the Space Trilogy? And if so, how do they enrich the narrative, do you think, Alistair? Well, I think Lewis's um, interest in medieval legends um, does lead him to kind of begin to um, begin to bring these images and these influences into the narratives. I mean, for example, in Perilandra, we have this beautiful image of the dance. And I mean, that is an image that's explored a lot in medieval and Renaissance literature. And Lewis, I think, makes very good use of that image. But basically what he's doing is he's taking something he knows very, very well from his professional life and transplanting it into um, his science fiction novels. And again, a lot of the imagery you find, particularly in Perilandra, has its origins in the kind of Renaissance literature that Lewis knew so well. So if you like, he's bringing his imagination to bear on the, the writing of these stories, and the imagination is kind of way influenced by his, his um, knowledge of medieval literature. And do you think we have to understand all of these references in order to enjoy the narrative, or, or can we read it w without the kind of background of, of Lewis's understanding? I think I, I have to say, I very often, in reading these novels, find myself saying, I think I know what Lewis is getting at here. Um, do I really need to know in order to appreciate the point he's making? In other words, is he simply ornamenting the narrative with his medieval allusions? Or is he making points through them so that you need to understand the original context to actually get the point he's making? I think I think there are points which you do need to understand them. And my concern is that makes it very difficult for a modern reader to entirely grasp what he's getting at. Um, so I think we have to say that perhaps we are not getting as much out of reading these books as we might um, otherwise have done. For example, if you go back to his first novel, which is The Pilgrim's Regress, Lewis later came to see that a lot of the allegories he used were simply incomprehensible and almost apologized to his readers saying, look, um, I think I overindulged myself here and I'm sorry they were so difficult to understand. Alistair, do we know if any of the inspiration for some of the characters in these books, I mean, we'll, we'll touch on these in more detail when we look at the specific books, but do we know if any of that inspiration came from Lewis's real life or are they totally made up, as he sort of seems to imply in the preface of Perilanger, where I think he says that the human characters are purely fictitious and not allegorical? I mean, is that true? Are they fictitious or, or are they sort of based on things that he knows? I think what Lewis is doing here is, in effect, saying, um, don't think I'm writing about people who I know here. <laughs> but in fact, I think it's very, very likely he was. Um, it's almost certain he's drawing on characters he knew in the senior common room at Malden College at Oxford University, some of whom were apparently quite strange. 
And I think Lewis might well have said, oh, I could work that, that one into a story. So I think there's that sort of thing going on. There are also various public figures who feel might be being um, transposed to these imaginary realms in very interesting ways. So I think what we have to say is it's very likely that Lewis is indeed basing some characters on people he knew. Maybe they are composite characters, but certainly um, I think that Lewis is basing his fiction on people he knew all too well from the world around him at Oxford. Well, I think it's probably fair to say that perhaps one of those is is the key figure, Ransom. I mean, is it significant that a number of the characters in the trilogy are philologists? I mean, is that how you say? Is it philologists? Philologists, yes, indeed. Um, yes, it is significant. And of course, when you say philology, you think J.R.R. Tolkien. Okay. Um, so again, you, you may have that. Or again, this simply may be Lewis's way of saying, actually, you know, Philologists have their virtues. They're very important people. We need intelligent people like that to help us understand things. So you, you feel that Lewis is perhaps making some quite important points that might please his friends um, in that way. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time, and some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' death, resurrection and return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Inti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' death, resurrection and return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash C.S. Lewis. That's premierinsight.org forward slash C.S. Lewis. Thank you. Who do you think is the narrator in these books? Um, because he seems to be a philologist as well, doesn't he? Yes. I mean, Lewis does have a sort of narrative continuity here. And um, obviously, uh, where you have a narrative um, thread, very often the narrator will make judgments, will bring things in, which kind of way give you an idea of how you should interpret the story at this point. And um, I, I think the narrator really is Lewis himself. I think uh, Lewis is kind of way putting his own ideas into the minds of those who are observing and reflecting and so on. But I think it's very difficult to avoid doing that. And Lewis clearly felt that the way he chose to do it worked, and therefore he was very happy to keep it going. Although I have to say the narrative style of each of these three books is quite different. The Idle Silent Plans is a very straightforward narrative. In um, in uh, Perilandra, it does, does change and it changes even more in the third and final novel in the sequence. Um, did we know, I mean, there was, as I was reading um, Out of the Silent Planet, I, I, you know, it sort of came up with I this and I that and I sort of circled it. It was like, who's I? Who's I? Do we know why the the narrator, the person of the narrator, isn't really introduced until the end of the book. Was that kind of an intentional technique or had he maybe not decided whether it was going to be 
himself or what, what's going on there? Because that, that was slightly confusing, I thought. Well, it is, it is a, a technique, and I think it's an understandable one, whereby, you know, as you read a narrative where you're being told a story, very often you want to know well, how reliable is the narrator? Who is the narrator? Mm. Who's telling me the story? Do they have an agenda? What, uh, how trustworthy are they? And of course, one of the key points here is that, um, you know, we, we eventually are told who the narrator is, um, but the point is it's kept a secret. And I, I think that's a narrative device to keep us guessing. Um, so we, we find that um, in other works of literature. So it's obviously a, a trope, a way of writing, a way of thinking that Lewis is familiar with. But there's quite a lot of moments, isn't there, in the novel where Lewis seems to be mixing real and fictional elements. For example, Oxford and Cambridge University compared to Edgestow University, which is obviously a made-up university. I mean, did he do that intentionally? Well, I think Lewis, again, had to protect himself against seeming to criticise certain known people or certain known institutions. And therefore, the best way of doing this is to create um, an invented universe where certain of its aspects might well bear a very close relationship to ones in this world, but Lewis didn't want to actually say that. So I guess what Lewis is, is trying to do is to create fictional counterparts of real-life institutions as a way of helping him to explore uh, what can go wrong with these things, what their problems are, how they could get something right. So I think we could just say that Lewis is really... Um, really using a technique which is very well established, which is using fictional counterparts to allow you to imagine um, what the strengths and the weaknesses of existing institutions and individuals actually are. And are some of the details that he includes, I guess because he's using a sort of mixture of real and fictional, it's quite difficult to know what is actually accurate or what is just fiction. For example, when he's talking about the planets uh, and I guess like the characteristics of the planets, is that accurate or is that just something that he's kind of created from his own head? I think he's created it not simply from his own head, but rather from his own head informed by science fiction writing on these topics. So I think in many ways what Lewis is doing is, is reflecting the, uh, a well-established literary tradition of thinking about these things. But again, Lewis is, is, is really constructing an imaginative framework within which he wants to, um, to explore certain questions. And to do that, he's got to hold his reader's attention. So therefore, he really needs to construct an interesting narrative with, with um, descriptions of things that hold your attention. So you can see why he's got to um, develop these in order to keep you reading. You mentioned, Alistair, that, that um, you know, some of this is really quite difficult to read, but I was actually struck by quite how funny um, some of these books were. There was just some some great one-liners. I'll just read some of them. Um, it says, the lady was apparently a British innkeeper of that orthodox school who regard guests as a nuisance. Um, and then there's another line, which so that's from Out of the Silent Planet, which I just thought was hilarious. And then there's another line in That Hideous Strength, which says, fellows of colleges do not always find money matters easy to understand. If they did, they probably would not have been the sort of men who became fellows of colleges. And there just was a couple of moments like that where I was quite sort of surprised by how humorous Lewis could be. Because I guess I don't think I've personally seen that side of him. Do, uh, you know, was there a kind of intentional style that Lewis had when he was writing the Space Trilogy, do you think? Well, that's a really interesting question. One of my um, doctoral students here at Oxford has been working on humour in C.S. Lewis's writings. 
Uh, certainly, he, he has really brought out very clearly, I think, the way in which Lewis uses humor in a number of ways. One is to make the narrative more readable and more engaging. I think you've picked up on that very well. The other is to use humor as a way of allowing you to encounter difficult ideas but not be frightened by them. I think that's it's a way of, in fact, opening up a conversation about some difficult questions uh, where you, you feel, I can cope with this because it's being presented in a very jocular or very easy to, uh, to understand way. So I think Lewis is um, quite funny at points in narratives. I think, actually, um, he's even better in the Chronicles of Narnia. So maybe we can see the, this trilogy as a test bed for the, the creative sure. use of humor in, um, in Narnia. Thank you for listening to this C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. We were hearing there from Professor Alistair McGrath, talking about one of Lewis's lesser-known works of fiction, the Space Trilogy. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time. <laughs>